Well, we resume our series on Jeremiah with chapter 26 tonight. So if you'll turn to Jeremiah 26 and follow in your handout, I am suggesting that there are narrative ripples in this chapter. In fact, narrative ripples which are interconnected or concatenated by a common motif. And so the first thing that I put to you is what is the common motif that interconnects the various levels of narrative rippling in this chapter. Now, if you haven't had a chance to read it, uh, maybe we ought to do that first. So have you had a chance to read it over? I don't think you have. All right. So <clears throat> good for you, Ben. <clears throat> so uh, let's let's begin. And what we'll do is just we'll read two verses each. So I'll begin with Ben. And it doesn't make any difference what version you have. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> when Ben's done... And uh, Lisa, if you'll take the next two, and then Susan, the next two, and so on, and we'll just keep working around till we finish the whole chapter. That way, we'll have it in front of us. Go ahead, Ben. It's the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. This word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak to all the cities of Judah, who have come to worship in the Lord's house, all the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not omit the word. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn off this evil way, that I may relent concerning the calamity which I propose to bring on them because of the evil of their deeds. And, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me, to walk in the law which I have said before you. And to listen to the words of my servant, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. And the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak, Then the Lord will relent 
and not bring the disaster he has pronounced against you. As for me, I am in your hands. Do with me whatever you think is good and right. Be assured, however, that if you put me to death, you will bring the guilt of innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on those who live in it. For in truth, the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man should not be sentenced to death. He has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Robert, can you take verses 17 and 18, please? Read them. I'm sorry, did, could you take the next two verses and read them? Verses 17. Okay, where are we? We're in, we're in Jeremiah 26. Yeah. 17. Verse 17, 17. Jeremiah 26. Okay. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of people, uh, Micah of Rejah prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the Temple Hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Thank you. Back to you, Ben. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against him? But we are committing a great evil against ourselves. Indeed, there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, from Kiriath and he prophesied against this city and against this land words similar to all those of Jeremiah. <laughs> and when Jeremiah came, the king, with all his mighty men and all the princes, heard his words, the king thought to put it to death. But when Jeremiah heard it, he was afraid and fled into Egypt. And Jeremiah came, the king sent a man to Egypt the son of Ikkor and other men who went with Egypt. Susan, if you could finish. And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. But the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, who was with Jeremiah, so that he so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. We're good. All right, now you have so we go back to uh, my declaration that there are narrative ripples in the chapter and that these ripples are interconnected by a common motif. And so would you like to suggest what that common motif may be? And Art's got a bright smile on his face. What do you think it may be, Art? There's uh, two, two sections where Jeremiah is preaching like the Lord instructed him to do. And after each of them is reactions from some of the people to his preaching. So you're saying the common motif is a reaction of the people? A reaction either by the priests or by the people. Okay. Uh, what might that reaction be? Or is there anyone that would like to disagree with Art or uh, say something beside that? Ben, you're, you, you have something on your tongue? Is it the discourse? 
Is there the dialogue back and forth or there's a discussion back and forth or you think that's the common motif? Any other suggestion? <clears throat> Let's go at it this way. <clears throat> How many prophets are there in this narrative? <clears throat> Loretta? There are three prophets. Who are they, Loretta? Who's the first one? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And speaks of Micah and Uriah. Micah and Uriah. Very good. Now, Loretta, who is the oldest? <clears throat> who would be the first chronologically? You're welcome to put, put forth the guess. Micah is the oldest. That is correct. And so who would come next? Probably not. So Jeremiah would come next and Uriah would be third. So the prophets who are present in this narrative, uh, beginning with the oldest, are Micah first, Jeremiah second, Uriah third. So you can fill in that part of your outline. Now let's think about those three prophets what is it that is common to each of them? What is a common theme or a common motif that is part of their story as it's recorded here in Jeremiah 26? Christina, what is it? Yes, that's the threat of death, isn't it? So each one of them is exposed to the threat of death. We're told that about Micah in that quotation uh, from uh, the, the elders. We're told that about Jeremiah explicitly here. On two occasions here in this chapter, he's threatened with death. And Uriah is not only threatened with death, he is actually executed. So we have a threefold narrative ripple which folds into its motif Namely, the threat of death to the prophets of the Lord. And we, ex we examine those narrative ripples in terms of how this uh, pattern, this narrative unfolds in this chapter. All right. Now, one of the things we want to ask then as we're looking at the unfolding narrative is who are the antagonists of the prophets in each narrative? So let's begin with Micah. Who is the antagonist of Micah in this narrative? He's the only one listed alongside of Micah in the verse where you find Micah's name. Hezekiah. Now, who is Hezekiah, Loretta? King of Judah. He is a king of Judah. Very good. So, the antagonist in this case is a king of Judah, namely Hezekiah. He rules, if you'd like a note on this, we may come back and talk about it. He rules from 728 to 686 B.C. 728 to 686 B.C. So, he's... Uh, about a hundred years before Jeremiah, who is the second antagonist in this narrative? Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, another king of Judah, correct. And he is the antagonist of whom? Uriah as well as 
as Jeremiah. So we'll put Jehoiakim in place number two and we'll duplicate him in place number three because he is the antagonist of both Jeremiah and Uriah. Now, let's ask, what are the dates of Jehoiakim's reign in Judah? Terry, when does Jehoiakim begin to reign in Judah? When does he take the throne? Or what is the event that brings him to the throne of Judah? Art, what's the event that brings Jehoiakim to the throne of Judah? Was it uh, his father was killed by the Egyptians? And what was his, and what was his father's name? You're right about his father being killed by the Egyptians. What was his father's name? It is Josiah. Then where was his father killed by the Egyptians? Short name of a city there, like Ego or something. Not a city, but a what? A pass. What was the name, Loretta? That's Nico is the king of Egypt who is in the army that kills him. Where is this pass? Ben? Go ahead, Terry. Megiddo. That's Megiddo. Yes, he was killed at Megiddo. <clears throat> All right, and uh, what's the year? You've got all you've got all the facts correct, namely, Jehoiakim's father, Josiah, is killed by the Egyptian Pharaoh King Necho <coughs> at the pass of Megiddo <coughs> as Necho is on the way up to the remnant of Assyria to withstand Nabopolassar and his crown prince son Nebuchadnezzar. <coughs> In what year? 609. Very good, Ben. In 609 B.C. So Jehoiakim comes to the throne. Is he the one that takes the throne after the death of Josiah? Ark shaking his head. Christina? Jehoahaz is uh, king after uh, Josiah, also named... Go ahead, Christina. Shalom, very good, from Jeremiah 22. All right, so actually the successor to Josiah is his youngest son, Jehoahaz or Shalom, and he is removed by Necho as Necho retreats from being defeated by the Assyrians at Carchemish in 609 and replaced by Jehoiakim so that Jehoiakim can be an effective Egyptian puppet on the throne of Jerusalem. All right, now, Jehoiakim reigns until what? And what happens to Jehoiakim on the what? Ben? 598 or 597? What happens to Jehoiakim in 598 or 597? Pardon? No, he's not taken to Egypt, but he is killed. What happens to his body? They throw it over the wall of Jerusalem. That is correct. He's given the donkey, a burial of a donkey of contempt, which suggests that he was probably assassinated, probably assassinated in some kind of a coup. Well, why would they assassinate their king and throw his body over the wall? What political crisis was occurring that they even killed their king and tossed his corpse over the wall. Yeah. 
at 597, Jehoiakim is indebted to whom? Not to Egypt. He's indebted to, go ahead, Terry, to Babylon. Who's the king of Babylon in 597? Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Well then, how come if Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, Jehoiakim's body is thrown over the wall? Go ahead, Terry. Well, he was uh, trying to make an alliance with Egypt. That's right. He was making. He was playing footsie with Egypt. He was betraying his vassalage to Babylon, and because he betrayed that relationship, Nebuchadnezzar marched out against him. And in order to perhaps placate the advancing army of Babylon, the people assassinated Jehoiakim, threw his body over the wall, in order to perhaps put off the uh, coming uh, debacle. And in, in, and in fact, his successor, that is Jehoiakim's successor, his son Jehoiakim, went out to meet Nebuchadnezzar as he approaches Jerusalem in an attempt to perhaps put off the inevitable destruction of the city, which may in fact have taken, in, uh, taken effect and extended the life of Jerusalem another 10 years. And we're not absolutely sure about that. <clears throat> but here is Jehoiakim. <laughs> ruling from 609 to 597, ruling ignominiously for a number of reasons, not only for the reasons that we see in this chapter, but the fact that he was a treacherous politician. He was a politician who was uh, not uh, uh, averse to playing games with the king of the world, uh, whether it happened to be Nebuchadnezzar or whether it happened to be uh, Nico uh, from 609 to 605. All right, we actually will return to this discussion of the date of Jehoiakim. If you look at the first verse of chapter 26, we can actually date this chapter, or at least uh, Jeremiah's appearance in this chapter, to that first year of Jehoiakim's reign. Now, I've given you a little map in your handout, and you might turn to the back page so that we can look at the village locations which are present in this narrative, or at least two of them. Uh, One of them is implicit. We know it already. And you'll note from that map that these are the native cities of the prophets of the Old Testament from the 9th to the 7th century B.C. Now, what do we know about Micah in verse 18 of chapter 26? What do you read there? Micah of Morasheth. Now, if you look at your map, just over there uh, below the Philistines, you'll notice Morasheth Gath. Now, Gath is a city in Philistia, which is just over that little dotted line to the west of the location of Morasheth Gath. And that's what the term means. In fact, if you read Micah chapter 1, you'll find that he is from Morisheth Gath, which means that he was on the uh, the Judah side of Gath in a little village called Morisheth. This is where he was born and raised. Now, this little village is not only the, the hometown of Micah, it is also a small village on the western border of the tribe of Judah. So this is actually in Judahite territory. Uh, It's not in Philistine territory, but it is very close to the Philistine border. 
All right, so on your outline, number one would be Morasheth, which is in the uh, border of the tribe of Judah. The second is uh, not named in our chapter, but it's implicit because our second narrative figure is the prophet Jeremiah. And who can tell me where Jeremiah was from? Anathoth. You'll notice Anathoth is on your map just above and to the right of Jerusalem, a very small village about three miles northeast of Jerusalem. In fact, you recall it's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1 of Jeremiah. We talked about it uh, when we discussed that verse. You can, on a clear day, see Jerusalem from Anathoth. Uh, it, it, is, it is that close by. Which leaves uh, the last figure, Uriah. And if you look at verse 20, which Ben read, you'll notice that Uriah is described as having come from Kiriath Yearim. Now, Kiriath Yearim is a very small village, and you'll notice that I've placed it on the map in uh, in print, which is not like the type font of the map itself, but it's slightly north and west of Jerusalem, and it is a town which is on the border between the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. Anathoth is in the region of Benjamin. So that, in fact, there is strong evidence that Jeremiah was a Benjamite. All right, so uh, we have the uh, place of origin for each of the figures here in the narrative. We have the antagonists for each of the figures in this narrative, and we have the figures themselves who are the prophets under the threat of death or the motif of destruction. And so we want to ask, how is this narrative being unfolded in terms of the interconnection between the narrative stories of the three prophetic individuals? My thesis then is that this chapter is a very carefully constructed and interconnected narrative which is folding the drama of the life of these three individual prophets into one another. It is, in fact, a mirror reflection of them because of this death threat which which hangs over the head of Jeremiah, but it also hangs over the head of Micah, and it hangs over the head of Uriah. All right, then let's attempt to analyze this uh, purpose of this chapter, the purpose of this narrative, the purpose of this interconnectivity. Let's attempt to analyze it in terms of the uh, next section of your outline. What does it reveal? What is the response? What is the outcome, etc.? All right, across the page then, as we go from uh, what is revealed to Micah, to Jeremiah, to Uriah, what is revealed to Micah will begin in verse 18. So if you look at verse 18, what is God revealing to and through Micah? Anyone? So say that in one or two words. God is threatening the destruction of Zion. So 
what is being revealed is God's threat. Is this not interesting? God is threatening something against Jerusalem, and Micah is going to be threatened in response. All right, so the threat of the destruction of Jerusalem is even uttered in the days of Micah in the time of King Hezekiah. All right, now going across the page to Jeremiah, what's being revealed to Jeremiah? In this particular chapter, has also been revealed in other chapters of the book of Jeremiah, which we have already studied. Take a look at verse 3, for instance, of chapter 26. Robert? There's a chance that some people will turn. What's being revealed? Uh, God's mercy. What else? If it's not mercy... Destruction. destruction of Jerusalem again, okay? So the threat of the destruction of Jerusalem is also present in Jeremiah's uh, discussion or the revelation of Jeremiah. Verse 3, verse 6, verses 12 to 15. Jeremiah is also revealing God's threat of the destruction of the city. What about Uriah? Verse 20. Susan, what's being revealed to Uriah? Well, it said, keep promising against the city in words like those of Jeremiah. So it's the same threat that Jeremiah has uttered, namely that the destruction of the city is revealed through the prophet Uriah. All right, right across the board then, we have the same revelation from Micah to Jeremiah to Uriah. It is God's threat of destruction of the city, even in the face of the people threatening the prophet with destruction. Interesting, isn't it? Very interesting. All right, now we skip down to the next line, namely the response to this revelation. All right, let's begin with Micah, and let's ask ourselves, what was the response to the revelation that Micah gave that Zion would be plowed as a field? Anyone? You back up to verse 18. Did God destroy the city? Go ahead, Scott. Who repented? Hezekiah repented. And what did God do? God relented. Hezekiah repented. God relented. So the response to the threat in the case of Micah is that Hezekiah repents or pleads and God relents. What about Jeremiah? What is the response to Jeremiah's revelation from God that Jerusalem is threatened with destruction? What do the prophets and priests do to Jeremiah? 
Verse 11. They threatened him with death. So the prophets and priests threatened Jeremiah with death. What do the elders do? Verse 17 and following. They relent. Okay, so the prophets and priests want him to die, but the elders and the officials relent because they want him to be spared. All right, now to Uriah. What is the response to Uriah's revelation from God that the city will be destroyed? Verses 21 and following. Who threatens Uriah? Jehoiakim. The king threatens him. Jehoiakim threatens him. And does Jehoiakim relent? No, he does not. So he threatens but does not relent. Now notice, we're beginning to see a paradigm, are we not? That there is a relenting and repenting in the case of Micah. There is a relenting without repenting in the case of Jeremiah. And there is a not relenting in toto completely in the case of Jehoiakim and Uriah. There is a gradation. There is a progression here. There is something that is being unfolded in terms of a narrative paradigm that is saying more than just what is involved in the personal interaction between the protagonist and antagonist in this narrative. There is something national about this interaction. All right, now what is the outcome? The next line. What is the outcome of uh, the response to Micah? Micah threatened, Hezekiah repented, God relented. What's the outcome? What happens to the prophet Micah? He was threatened with death. What's the outcome? He is spared. The prophet is spared. The city is threatened with death. Zion will be plowed like a field. What's the outcome? Is Jerusalem plowed like a field in the days of Hezekiah and Micah? No, the city is spared. All right. So the prophet is spared. The city is spared. All right. Moving over to Jeremiah. What happens to the, in the outcome to the prophet? What happens to Jeremiah? He is spared. What happens to the city? It is not spared in toto. All right. It is not spared in toto. Hold that in abeyance. Hold that for a moment. We're going to come to that in the next column. It is not all the city that is destroyed and not all the city that is spared. All right. But what about Uriah? What's the outcome of the threat against Uriah? He is not spared. He is killed. All right. So we're noticing a gradation of outcomes in response to the threat. 
in, the, in response as the uh, prophet and the people and the individuals in the narrative are drawn into that response, which foreshadows what? All right, let's begin with Micah. The city is spared, foreshadowing the sparing of what? More than the city. Temple. More than the temple. People. The whole nation. The whole nation is spared. All of Judah is spared. All right, so it's not just Jerusalem that's not going to be plowed. It's Judah that is not going to be plowed in the days of Hezekiah. It's the whole nation which is going to be spared. All right, now let's skip over Jeremiah's, go over to the column for Uriah. What is being foreshadowed by the death of the prophet Uriah? Nothing spared. Meaning, what's not going to be spared? What was spared under Micah? The nation, the nation was spared. Now, under Uriah? The nation is not going to be spared. The destruction of the nation, the death of the nation. So we've got the antitheses on either end of this. Under Micah, the nation is spared. Under Uriah, the nation is not spared. It's going to be put to death. But what about Jeremiah? We said the city is not spared in toto. How do we place Jeremiah into this unfolding paradigm? The paradigm on the left of Jeremiah is that the whole nation is spared. The paradigm on the right of Jeremiah is the whole nation is killed, put to death. How does Jeremiah fit into the paradigm? Partly spared. Partly spared because he's part of a what? He's part of the remnant, exactly. You see, the sparing of Jeremiah is a reflection of the sparing of the remnant. Not the whole nation will be spared. Not the whole nation will be put to death. But Jeremiah represents that in-between transition, that transition in which a remnant will be rescued. And he is a part of that rescued remnant. In fact, he will be rescued and taken down into Egypt as a means of preserving him alive amongst that remnant band. All right, so notice this interconnected paradigm which is unfolding the whole foreshadowing prospect of the options of the future of the nation of Judah. One option is that in the days of Jeremiah, the city will be completely spared. It will not be destroyed. That was an option which was present under Hezekiah by the prophet Micah. Is it an option now? Hmm. Let's watch how the narrative unfolds. One of the options is that the whole nation will be put to death, even as Uriah is put to death. Will the whole body of Israel be put or Judah be put to death? No, because Jeremiah also proclaims and demonstrates in his own character and life and biography that he is part of a remnant according to the election of grace. There's your whole paradigm. It is the paradigm of the options of the history of redemption unfolded in the lives of these three prophets. From God sparing the entire body of the nation by his grace, from God putting to death the whole nation by his wrath, or from God taking a remnant according to the electing of grace and visiting his wrath upon the wicked, but visiting his grace upon those who have found favor in his sight by grace through faith. Those options haven't changed one bit. There are still the options that are before the people of God. 
in the era of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're the options of God graciously sparing all his people from the brutality and savagery of destruction and death. There is the option of his visiting, his judgment upon the world and his people being drawn into that judgment because of them being conformed to the death of Christ who was put to death by the rulers of the people. And in between, there is that option in which a remnant will be preserved from that threat of death. And they will be kept in the hand of God's almighty and omnipotent grace and love, though they will face the threat of death and persecution and ostracism, etc. All right, notice that this narrative paradigm here, which is peculiar to the history of Israel, is in fact trans-historical. It is trans-redemptive historical. It carries with it the motif of that which is present in every era of the history of redemption with respect to God's sovereign disposition of his plan with respect to his people. Therefore, we have in this chapter an overview of that paradigm with respect to his servants, the prophet Micah, the prophet Jeremiah, and the prophet Uriah, who are exegetical of his relationship with the people to whom he reveals himself through those prophets. This is a carefully constructed narrative. It is a carefully concatenated biographical paradigm, and it is done so because... These are the options before the people of God in in this era of the history of redemption as they are the options in every era of the history of redemption. All right. uh, Now, with respect to the royal character line, we talked about the antagonists uh, of each of the uh, uh, biographical figures, Micah, Jeremiah, and Uriah. Now we want to look at the character of those royal figures, and we begin with Micah and Hezekiah. What was the character of Hezekiah, king of Judah? He was a God-fearing king. He was a good king. And we've already noted from the 18th verse of this 26th chapter that he was a penitent king. That is, he humbled himself before God. So he was a good and penitent ruler of Judah. What about Jehoiakim under Jeremiah? What kind of a king is Jehoiakim? Good king? He is a wicked king. Is he a wicked king as as wickedly displaying his wickedness under Jeremiah as he is under Uriah? Let's go to Uriah for a moment. We notice that Jehoiakim is a wicked king under Jeremiah. What about under Uriah? Is Jehoiakim's character any different under Uriah? No, it is no different. He is a wicked king. Well, then what is the difference between Jehoiakim under the category of Jeremiah and the category of Uriah? What's the difference? He's a wicked king under Jeremiah, and he's a wicked king under Uriah. But what's the difference? Under Uriah, under Jeremiah, he's a wicked king. He didn't uh, execute Jeremiah. He didn't. 
So there's something what? There's something holding him back. There's something restraining him, right? Okay, so he's a wicked king, but he's a wicked restrained king under Jeremiah. What about Uriah? He is a wicked and unrestrained and even unrepentant king. He does this without any second thought. Summarily executes this prophet of the Lord God. Strikes him down with his own sword. With his own sword. Can you imagine that? Unsheaths his own sword and slices the prophet of the Lord God in front of himself. What absolute arrogance as well as absolute evil. Robert? He actually went even a step farther than that because he sent out a, a posse to go to Egypt to go get it. I want to come back to that later, so hold on to that because I want to ask you why he did that. Okay, but let's understand the horror of what has happened to Uriah and how this explains this other uh, option of the destruction of the nation, the death of the nation, because as the death of Jehoiakim is, so is the death of the nation for such an evil and wicked heart. All right, now that leaves the significance as the last line of uh, analysis here. The significance in each case has to do with the prophet and his interconnection with the nation with the nation's concatenation with the prophet. Beginning with Micah, the prophet Micah is as the nation of Judah. They are both spared. There is, therefore, this mirror reflection in the prophet and in the nation. Both are spared. What about Jeremiah? Under Jeremiah, the prophet is as the remnant of the nation. For he is a remnant himself. And he himself reflects the remnant of the nation which is spared from the sword of Nebuchadnezzar. Under Uriah, once again the prophet is as the nation. But this time, the nation is doomed as this prophet is doomed. How many in this nation are going to be cut down by the swords of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian army? How many of this nation are going to be doomed by the sword, even as Uriah himself was doomed by the sword? The significance then of the narrative ripples is the significance of what's being outlined in terms of the present and future history of the nation of Judah in the days of Jeremiah, Uriah, and King Jehoiakim. We reach back to the 8th century, to the late earth 8th century B.C. under Hezekiah to Micah, and we see a different paradigm. By the time we're at the end of Jeremiah's paradigm with Uriah, by the end time we're at the end of the paradigm here in 26, we see a completely antithetical paradigm. That is the reason this chapter is so finely interconnected. That's the reason the three prophets are here. That's the reason the three stories are here. They are here to draw us into the drama of God's sparing mercy, God's remnant mercy, and God's dooming 
rise. Any questions? <clears throat> Scott? Even though Uriah, in a sense, is identified with a nation that's totally destroyed, is there a sense in which he identified with Christ is identifying with Christ in Christ's suffering the wrath of God? Because Jeremiah might represent Christ in terms of the remnant rotation? Good. Uh, <clears throat> I don't mean to cut off any Christological association with it. I just didn't go that far. I am interested in, you know, getting the the narrative before us. But we do have the pattern, of course, of the life of the eschatological prophet here. The options for the eschatological prophet are that he could be spared entirely. The options are that he could be treated as a remnant himself. The option is that he could also bear the wrath of God and the doom of his people. It is, of course, marvelous that he folds all of those in one aspect or another into himself. So this becomes proleptic or eschatologically anticipatory in its richness. Nonetheless, for us who stand on the outside of that finished work, the replay occurs. We come face to face with the options that are before us in terms of the continuing uh, progress of the history of redemption. Thank you for the question. Any other comments? Okay. All right, now, uh, we want to return to the first verse and follow the outline uh, for the discussion in our second half. Beginning with a question which we've already addressed, uh, namely, what clue does verse 1 of chapter 26 give us to the date of this incident? It would be 609 B.C. because it's the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. So this would be uh, the time when he was replacing his brother uh, after the death of Josiah and the collapse of Egypt and Assyria's last stand against Babylon. Now, verse 2 provides a location for Jeremiah's comments or for his public address or speaking the revelation of God uh, to the nation. And what is the location of uh, Jeremiah's address? It is Jerusalem. Particularly where in Jerusalem? The temple. In the temple. The court of the Lord is a, a clue to the fact that this is where Jeremiah is preaching. This is not the first time that we have noted him in this venue. In fact, there are those that argue that this chapter is a duplication or a repetition of Jeremiah's famous temple sermon which is in chapter 7, verses 1 to 15, a sermon which we began to analyze thoroughly at the, uh, in the fall of last year. In that sermon, in chapter 7, verse 4, you recall the famous slogan or banner that was repeated by the people, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are, is these or are, is here. I myself am not persuaded 
that this is a duplication of the temple sermon in chapter 7. There are differences between Jeremiah's vocabulary here in 26 and in chapter 7, although there are some similarities. This sermon is much shorter than the sermon in uh, chapter 7, and that's another reason why I think there are two distinct sermons. In other words, uh, I believe that Jeremiah came to the temple on numerous occasions, and one of those occasions is specifically outlined in great detail in chapter 7. Another occasion is outlined here in lesser detail in chapter 26, but they are two distinct visits to the temple to proclaim the word of the Lord. Now, verse 5 indicates in uh, some versions, uh, again and again, I have sent my servants the prophets, or some versions say, constantly I have uh, sent my prophets. Who might Jeremiah have in mind? I have constantly sent my prophets. Who is the easiest one he may have in mind? Perhaps even easier than Micah, Uriah, his own contemporary, right? So one of the uh, prophets whom God sent is obviously Uriah. Who else would be contemporary with Jeremiah? Jeremiah and Uriah, they are prophets of the 7th century B.C., 7th and 6th century B.C. Who else is a 7th century B.C. prophet? Isaiah. Isaiah is not. What? Not, since you brought it up, what century is Isaiah a prophet of? Not the seventh century, but Isaiah is a prophet of the eighth century. Correct. He does overlap a little bit, Robert, but he's mainly a prophet of the eighth century BC. <clears throat> and and uh, Ben, you are answering the question of a contemporary of Jeremiah, I believe. Ezekiel is a contemporary of Jeremiah. Now, what's the difference between Jeremiah and Ezekiel? They're both 7th century, 6th century B.C. prophets. Ezekiel is not in Jerusalem, correct? He is in Babylon by the River Kibar, right, which is actually a canal. All right, so Ezekiel is in Babylon. How did he get to Babylon? Terry? No, what was the first time Nebuchadnezzar took the Judeans into exile or some Judeans into exile? That was when Daniel was taken. What year was that? Anyone? 605. That was 605. That was the first siege of Jerusalem when he takes Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego away. Okay, so Daniel would also be a 6th or 7th century uh, prophet, 7th or 6th century prophet, uh, but he's not usually listed with this uh, category of prophets because he's more of an apocalypticist than he is a prophet per se. But however, uh, we'll allow him into the club for the sake of discussion. But the difference between, so back to the question of when was, how did Ezekiel get to Babylon? Go ahead, Terry, you want to redeem yourself? 
This is the second time 597, which we've already mentioned, namely when Jehoiakim is assassinated and Nebuchadnezzar comes because Jehoiakim has refused to pay his annual tribute. And it is the second siege of Jerusalem when Jehoiakim, his son, goes out with the queen mother in order to placate Nebuchadnezzar and is carried off into captivity along with the prophet Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is deported in 597. And in Babylon, he prophesies back to Jerusalem, but he is not prophesying in Jerusalem. That is the difference between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Both of them are prophesying in the time of the exile and destruction of Jerusalem. One of them is already in exile. The other one is projecting it. All right, so we have Jeremiah, Uriah, Ezekiel. We'll allow Daniel into the discussion as well. The other 7th century B.C. prophets. Well, you shouldn't be too disappointed because the minor prophets are not really very well known by the church, more's the pity. But at any rate, when you think about these books of the Bible, as you memorize them, as you repeat them, as you name the books of the Bible, and you should keep doing that every once in a while just to keep your mind fresh about it, you should also be able to say something about those books of the Bible which you're naming. You know, what's in that? What's the content of that book of the Bible? All right, so we've got two other... 7th, 6th century B.C. prophets, contemporaries of Jeremiah, though they don't name one another. And the first one is Habakkuk, who sees the siege of the Chaldeans coming and says, Lord, how can you use this evil nation against us, the good guys? And what does God say to Habakkuk? All you Protestants, what does he say? The just shall live by faith. All right. So Habakkuk's comment about that famous justification by faith passage, chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk, is in the context of the 7th century anticipation of Nebuchadnezzar's invasion. Nebuchadnezzar's on the horizon. Habakkuk sees it. And he asks God the question of how can you use evil people for good purposes? Okay? Since we're the good people. Or so we think we are. All right. So Habakkuk is one other contemporary of Jeremiah, although there's no indication, at least in the biblical text, that they knew one another. That doesn't mean they didn't, it's just not mentioned. The last 7th or 6th century B.C. prophet. No, Nahum is a 7th century B.C. Yes, he is a 7th century B.C. prophet, but he's probably before the rise of Jeremiah and his contemporaries. And Nahum is not focused on Babylon. Nahum is focused on the end of Assyria. Nahum and Nineveh, keep the N and N together. Nahum and the destruction of Nineveh in 612 B.C. Who's the other 7th century? Zephaniah. Zephaniah and Habakkuk would be the other 7th century figures. All right, so here are some individuals that may be in the mind of Jeremiah as he's speaking this word. Not to mention the fact that he may be looking back to Micah, who appears in this chapter, which also raises the question of the 8th century B.C. prophets. Who are the 8th century B.C. prophets? Who's the great contemporary of Micah in the 8th century? Isaiah. So Isaiah and Micah are contemporaries. Who else is an 8th century B.C. prophet? Amos is an 8th century B.C. prophet. Is he a prophet to Judah? Yes and no. He's a prophet to both Judah and Samaria. 
but he's focusing more on the northern kingdom. Okay? Who else is an 8th century B.C. prophet? Daniel. Daniel is a 6th century. Not, no, Nahum is also 7th century, but he's before the Babylonian focus. Hosea. Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, and Micah. And we'll add Jonah, who's also an 8th century B.C. prophet. All right, so we're drawing together the possibilities in Jeremiah's mind as he talks about God sending the prophets constantly. He goes all the way back to the 8th century. He's certainly aware of his own century, and he may also have known about others besides himself and Uriah. It is conceivable that he was aware of Ezekiel, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. Conceivable. Right now, in verse 6, he mentions the house of Shiloh. What happened to Shiloh? Where was Shiloh? What was at Shiloh? Terry, what was at Shiloh? The tabernacle. The tabernacle of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant was at Shiloh. What days are we talking about when God had the tabernacle at Shiloh? What time in Israel's history? Can you associate it with a person? It's Samuel's days, correct. It's the 11th century B.C. It's before King Saul and before uh, King David. So we're back to approximately 1100 B.C. and a little bit forward from that. All right, so uh, what happens in this Shiloh incident? What happens to the Ark of the Covenant? Terry, you're doing so well. I'll let you continue to have the floor. Well, for a while... They captured the Philistines. Capture the Ark of the Covenant, right? What do they put? Where do they do with it? They took it to their temple. To their temple. What god? Starts with a D. That's all I know. Starts with a D. Anyone? Dagon. Dagon takes it to the temple of Dagon. And what happens to Dagon, Terry? Uh, the their. Dagon falls in front of the Ark of the Covenant as if uh, God prostrates the idols of the nations in front of his own Ark. And so the Philistines decide that they don't want to keep this thing around and they send it back. But they also destroy that village of Shiloh and the tabernacle itself. And consequently, this reference to the destruction of the uh, tabernacle of God by the Philistines is going to be reprised. God's going to say, I'm going to do to the temple here in Jerusalem what I allowed to happen to the tabernacle at Shiloh. Now, this is not the first time that Jeremiah has mentioned it. If those of you who have a cross-reference Bible will notice that there's a reference to chapter 7 of Jeremiah, verses 12 to 14, in which he already has alluded to this, which is one reason you will notice, since Shiloh is mentioned both here in 26 and in 7, some scholars think that this uh, sermon in 26 is a duplication of the sermon in chapter 7 because Shiloh is mentioned both places. Another uh, notice, if you uh, note your cross-reference, if you have a cross-reference Bible, you may have a note on Psalm 78. Uh, Psalm 78, verses 60 and 61, poetically recall the destruction of Shiloh. And they tie it into the great Exodus psalm, which Psalm 78 is, namely in a uh, 
a, a survey of the history of the children of Israel from the time they were brought out of Egypt to the time they were settled into the land of uh, Palestine under the judges and even beyond to Samuel himself. It's an interesting uh, verse, poetic reflection on the destruction at Shiloh. All right, we come now to verse 8. And we want to characterize this event, which is recorded in verse 8. How do we characterize it? First of all, you'll notice that he is confronted by the mob that has listened to him, or the crowd that has listened to him. I'm going to give it a little bit of a pejorative. I'm going to call it a mob. And they surround him uh, as he is speaking. And not only do they surround him, you'll notice that the verse says that they seize him. And that word seize carries with it the suggestion of the use of force. They actually lay violent hands upon him. And they're not done yet. They then threaten him. They threaten him with death. Their intent, having surrounded him, having seized him, having laid their hands upon him, their intent is to kill him. That is what they express by not only their uh, restricting his access or his ability to get away from them, not only by seizing him and laying hands on him, arresting him by their own force, but also by verbally assaulting him with a death threat. A savage act of a savage mob. Let us pray, God, we are not ever left to savage mobs. Even in our own nation, we've seen too much of that in the last year. Far too much. All right, verse 10. The New American Standard translates the characters in this verse as the princes of Judah. When you hear the term prince, what do you think of? Like a king's son. So you think of royalty, don't you? All right, now, over in verse 16, you'll notice that the characters in this verse are translated, at least in the New American Standard, as officials. It's exactly the same word, and I'm not really sure why they translate it differently, because it should be translated equally. They are both officials. The princes here gives you the idea of royalty, and so it is officials of the royal court. And perhaps that's the reason they varied the translation. I'm not really sure why they did. But nonetheless, it would have been better to be consistent because it is, in fact, misleading to suggest that these are royal sons of kings and queens. That's not who is coming into the scene of the drama. Uh, These are the court officials of the king's palace. Pete? I have a new international view. official in both places. Good. Good for the NIV. So three cheers for the NIV. It finally got something right. Uh, this is a new international. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I've always taken it from back there. And it was the... Uh, it just goes to prove you can't be wrong all the time. All right. <laughs> That's a private joke. <laughs> All right, now, we also have in this verse a reference to the new gate of the Lord's house. 
what is this new gate? It is probably the same as the upper gate that is mentioned in verse 2 of chapter 20. Now, I included 2 Kings 15.35 there because King Jotham, king of Jerusalem, builds this gate. And it's called the upper gate in 2 Kings 15.35. The guess, then, is that it is the same thing as what Jeremiah is referring to as the new gate. Newly built by King Jotham, less than 100 years before. Therefore, at the upper level of the wall of the temple court. Another upper being northernmost. We're not real sure where it was. We're only deducing from the uh, clues that are in the description here. Uh, So uh, no archaeological excavation has uncovered it, and we're not really certain from the other biblical data that, that where it was in that upper wall, but that's where we suppose it is. All right. Obviously, these officials coming to this gate are coming for a kind of investigation of judgment, a examination of the evidence, and that's precisely what they do. They listen to Jeremiah's defense, and Jeremiah's defense consists of three elements. First of all, God sent me. It is not my word. It is God's word. It is one of the most effective ways of talking to an unbeliever. It's not what I'm saying to you, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's Jesus' word. Jesus says that. You don't have a problem with me. It's not a matter of my prejudice. You're going to have to take it up with Jesus. That's what the word says. That's what the text says. So I'm only testifying to what God has told me to say. So don't beat me up for what I'm simply relaying to you on the basis of the word of God. Of course, that's not always going to work. We realize that. But nonetheless, it's not you that's being... uh, discriminatory, prejudiced, bigoted, etc., etc., etc. It's just simply using the words of the text of Scripture. Obviously, as a footnote, we realize the day may be coming when we're going to be called bigots simply for repeating what God has said. In other words, God's going to be a bigot. They're not going to like us. They're not going to like God. They're not going to like the word of God, etc. That's already true in many ways. But nonetheless, it's not our word. It is God's word. Second thing that Jeremiah <coughs> brings to his, uh, to his defense is that uh, he does not resist them. Notice verse 14. He submits. That is, he passively submits to their fury. And the second thing, that third thing that he brings in his defense is the countercharge that if, in fact, they do kill him, they will bring guilt of innocent blood upon their own head. That is, of course, a very serious matter to kill, murder, or execute a person who is innocent brings the guilt of innocent blood upon your own head. Is very careful. Be very careful. Very careful with this matter of execution, murder, and death. All right. Now, these officials in verse 16... Bring in their verdict. Their verdict is that Jeremiah should be acquitted. On the basis of what the elders, verse 17, recall. Now, it's interesting to speculate who these elders are. Obviously, they are the older members of this crowd. They are not the officials. They are not the priests and the prophets. 
They are not the young Turks that may be there because they're interested in a crowd or in uh, in the action that's going on in the temple court. <clears throat> These are men of maturity, so mature or so elderly that they can recall Micah's prophecy. Micah's prophecy, which is recorded <clears throat> uh, in Micah uh, chapter 3, verse 12, the lines are then recited. Are these elders old enough to have heard it? Or are these elders simply men of age and maturity who knew it because it had been recorded? In other words, do we have a testimony here to the recording of Old Testament scripture? The words of Micah the prophet, an 8th century B.C. prophet, written down in some fashion so that those in the 7th century B.C. could actually turn to it and read it and, excuse me, and knew it and had memorized it. These are intriguing questions, are they not? Quite interesting questions. Because if, in fact, it's valid to argue that Micah's prophecy is remembered because it was recorded, then we have the process of the recording of the words of the prophets very close to the time in which they uttered them. In fact, as we will see with Jeremiah's prophecies, Barak is writing them down as he speaks them, which means that we're not dealing with the earliest text of Homer's Iliad or Odyssey. You realize that it's hundreds of years later. What we're dealing with the Old Testament is we're dealing with texts which were recorded very close to the time in which the words were uttered, or in which the words were recorded and passed on down from there on. We're back to the very origin of the source itself. It's a very interesting pattern here. All right, now back to the question of how old are these elders. All right, I gave you the date of Hezekiah, that he died in 686 B.C. Okay, what date are we at here? This chapter is dated to what year? Anyone? 609. 609. All right, do the subtraction. 686 minus 609. And what's the difference? Art? 77. 77 years. These elders would have been one year old or would have been born the year Hezekiah died. They'd be 77 years old. Is it likely that they heard him say this? If they heard him say it, when did he say it? That raises the next question in verse 18. I will take that up. But they are at least 77. They couldn't be any younger than 77 years. If we're going to say elders has to do with their age and not just with their status of being mature members of the Israelite or Judaite culture at this time in 609. Scott? What tells us they couldn't have been born a few years after their parents told them about this? No, I'm not denying that. But I'm saying, did they hear it firsthand? That's, that's the issue. That's, does elders mean they heard it? Right, right. They heard him speak it. Not that they heard somebody say that they heard him speak it. Not that they read it, but did they actually, were they old enough to, are they old enough now that they had actually heard the the autographer, the original, not autographer, but uh, auto verba, <coughs> the, uh, the the self revelation, and uh, Art, you had a comment. 
No, I was about to ask the same question. Okay. All right. So you notice the distinction I'm making. I want, I want to know how far this word elder can be pushed. All right. And that brings us to verse 18. <clears throat> when did Micah prophesy this statement? Namely, Zion will be plowed as a field. Right, now the clue comes from verse 19, actually. Namely, that it affects something in the life of Hezekiah. Now, I don't have time to turn, we don't have time to turn to the chapters. Uh, But here's here's what I want to uh, scope out for you. In 2 Kings 20, we are told the story of Hezekiah's illness in which God gives him a sign. Do you remember what the sign was? That the sundial would go back 10 degrees and God would add 15 years to his life. All right, so 15 years to his life. We know when he died. So what's the date of the sign? Do the math. 15 plus 686. Mark, you're a math major. 701 B.C. What happened in 701 B.C.? Not only did Hezekiah fall ill and was spared and given 15 more years to live, but something else happened in 701 B.C. Perhaps the most significant event in Jerusalem before its destruction in 586 B.C. Yes, the serious siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib in 701. when the Rabshakeh came to the walls of Jerusalem and said that he was going to shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. And what did God do? God delivered Jerusalem by slaying 185,000 Assyrian soldiers that night and delivered the city from Sennacherib's siege. All right, so we're putting together a series of events. Isaiah is part of this narrative as well because Isaiah is right alongside Hezekiah as all of this is, is transpiring. All right, so Hezekiah becomes ill after the siege or before the siege? After the siege. So we are after 701 B.C. for his illness. The Assyrian has already been destroyed and left the land. They've withdrawn. Hezekiah falls ill. God spares him. But after that illness, notice verse 19. Hezekiah does something that causes him to entreat the favor of God. What does he do? 2 Corinthians 32 tells you what he does. He becomes exalted in his pride. Out of that very same illness, he becomes arrogant. He then repents, and in his repentance, God spares him. So what happens is that conceivably, that illness which fell upon him caused him to get Big-headed. In other words, it caused him to think a great deal about himself, even though he was sick. And it was only as he was humbled by that illness later on, only as he humbled himself before God, only as he repented of his arrogance and his pride, as 2 Corinthians 32, verse 25 especially says, did God himself spare him, and also did God cause him to turn back his threat against the destruction of Zion being made plowed like a field. So we can date this prophecy of Micah on the basis of the combination of these other texts to very close to 701 B.C., which would mean that the elders, if they were 77 years old in 686, how old would they be in 701? 
Back to you, Art. Well, I don't know, close to 100. Add 15 to 77. 92. 92. In other words, they would have been born the year he spoke it, and they would be 92 years old in 609. Would it be conceivable that as newborn babes they would have remembered it? Not likely. So, you see, we keep pushing it further back. They would have had to have been old enough to hear it and understand it if they were going to be ear witnesses to this prophecy, which would push them back, as Art said, beyond the age of 100. I don't think it's likely. That <clears throat> All this to say, the term elders there in verse 17, I don't think refers to men old enough to have been there when in 701 B.C., Micah uttered the words that are recorded here in Jeremiah 26. I think they are spiritual, mature leaders of Judah and Jerusalem. That's what the term refers to. And in their maturity, they knew this story. They knew this prophecy. They had been taught it. They had read it. It had been recorded. They remembered it. They bring it out of their spiritual maturity to defend Jeremiah. And to note that this isn't the first time that God sent a prophet to threaten us with destruction. In fact, God did that. And you remember Micah of Morisheth. He did it. And you remember what King Hezekiah did. He humbled himself. He repented. And God spared the city. And don't you think we ought to do the same thing? Huh? Don't you think Jehoiakim ought to do the same thing? And he relents in the case of Jeremiah. But then that brings us to Uriah, who had fled verse 21, to Egypt. And what does that connote to Jehoiakim? Uriah has fled to Egypt, and Jehoiakim seizes him, extradites him, sends a man to arrest him, bring him back to Jerusalem, why does Jehoiakim react this way against Uriah when he doesn't react this way against Jeremiah who stays in Jerusalem? He's a vassal of Nebuchadnezzar. So what does he see Uriah doing? Going to the enemy. Going to the enemy. Guilty of treason. Correct. In other words, it is possible that one of the reasons Jehoiakim reacts so viciously here is because he regards Uriah as seditious. Which means that this event must take place after what year in Jehoiakim's reign? When does he become a vassal of Babylon? 605, the first siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. From 609 to 605, who is he a vassal of? Egypt. Because Nico puts him on the throne of Jerusalem in 609, and he owes tribute to Egypt from 609 to 605. But in 605, Nebuchadnezzar comes, and now, no, there's no question he's going to give any tribute to Egypt. He's going to give his tribute to Nebuchadnezzar because he's a Babylonian vassal. Therefore, if it is true that he is suspicious that Uriah is guilty of treason, it must have happened after 605. 
So the story of Uriah is in this narrative that begins in verse 1 with 609 details, and now we're at the end of this chapter to possibly post-605 details. The whole story is united in terms of its thematic motif, whether it is 609 or whether it is 605. All right. Al-Nathan is the person in verse 21, I'm sorry, 22, who extradites Uriah, and he will also occur in this story of Jeremiah in chapter 36, verses 11 to 13 and 25. Where will he, what's going on in chapter 36 of the book of Jeremiah? That is the story of Jeremiah's scroll being burned by King Jehoiakim. And Elnathan hears that scroll read when Jehoiakim starts to slice it up and burn it. In fact, in verse 25 of Jeremiah 36, Alnathan pleads with Jehoiakim not to burn Jeremiah's scroll. Does that make sense? This man who brings back the prophet of the Lord who is killed, and then <clears throat> he tries to defend Jeremiah's scroll from the flames? Interesting juxtaposition. Is it possible that Elnathan had a change of heart? Is it possible that he brought back Uriah and didn't realize what Jehoiakim was going to do with him? These are possibilities which we cannot answer. But it is interesting that Elnathan has two different character positions in the book of Jeremiah. All right, verse 23, this is a summary execution. A summary execution means right on the spot. And there are a list of Old Testament prophets who have been killed. The most famous is the, so is the Zechariah of Second Chronicles 24, who is also mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 23 and Luke 11. And in Hebrews 11, the prophets who are sawn in two. The tradition being, as Hebrews 11:37, tradition being that that prophet who was sawn in two was Isaiah. That's a tradition. It's not in the scriptures. Okay, so there were other prophets slain besides Uriah. Zechariah, for sure, perhaps Isaiah, but the New Testament refers to others, plural. Which brings us to chapter, to verse 24 and the point of the verse. It's obviously a point of contrast. The chapter ends with a contrast between the death of Uriah and the life of Jeremiah ongoing. It also concatenates this final narrative ripple of chapter 26 with the rest of the story. The rest of the story of Jeremiah, which is that his life will go on as a testimony and a proclamation of the word of God to a nation under judgment. A nation which will go into exile a nation which will be destroyed, save for a remnant. This verse then prepares us for the ongoing career of God's prophet who is preserved by the industry and the skill of a hikam. And I've given you the family tree there at the bottom of the page. I don't have time to uh, explain. Explain it any further. Uh, the passages are there for your instruction. Shaphan is the father. 
He is involved with Huldah the prophetess and Hilkiah the high priest in the reform of Josiah in which they rediscover the books of Moses in the temple. And in 621, they bring reformation to the whole nation and cast out the idolatry, etc. Those sons, Ahikam, Gemariah, and Elishah, are his children. And Ahikam has a son named Gedaliah who will become the governor of Yehud, as it's called after the Babylonian captivity, namely what's left of Judah. It's called Yehud, Y-E-H-U-D. That's its name, particularly in the Persian annuals. But he will become the governor after the uh, exile of uh, of, uh, Zedekiah, the last king of Jerusalem, and the destruction of the city. Uh, uh, He will be uh, governor until he's assassinated by the group that will take Jeremiah captive down into Egypt. More of that story later. Next week, chapter 28. Any questions? We're skipping 27. Next week, 28. Scott. You're free to go if you need to. Go ahead, Scott. Since there were no questions, I just thought you might want to add something you probably didn't recognize you were doing because you were in a hurry. You accidentally said Corinthians instead of Chronicles. I'm sorry. Yes. So just for those who only have a tape, yeah. Yeah, correct the tape, look at the outline. <laughs> Download your hand out, you were listening to the tape. Yes, Frank, you had a question? Yeah, Robert asked about Jehoiakim, and you said you would get back to that. Um, I can't remember what he did before he struck down the riot. Yeah, uh, I, I did get back to it, I think, in outlining the details of going down into Egypt and why he, put it, he saw him in Egypt, etc. Robert had said he sent a posse after him. I was explaining why I think the posse is uh, uh, bringing back a traitor, as Pete indicated, a traitor. Yes. Uh, 